1793. October, November, December. Three months in which Napoleon Bonaparte helps the French retake Toulon. The assault will be successful uh, after their all-night-long fighting, and Bonaparte famously will be injured in, in his thigh. The Austrians set themselves up for a fall at Wattingley. It's a strong position, so strong that Coburg says, if the French can get me out of this position, I shall, I shall wear the ragged trousers of a sans-culotte. And in the Caribbean, the situation on Saint-Domingue descends further into the mire. The best way to summarise it is to say that this was a moment of, of utter turmoil. I'm Alexander Stevenson, and this is episode 8 of the Napoleonic Quarterly, covering three months in which the French revolutionaries crushed their enemies within and without through the merciless use of brute force. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period three months at a time. And for the three months covered by this episode, I'm joined by Philip Ball on Wattingley and Christy Picicero on Haiti, as well as by Charles Esdale and Alexander Mikabaridze as usual. But first, here's the headline developments to bring you up to speed. And this is three months in which the French Revolution takes major steps towards quashing the internal revolts which have challenged the authority of Robespierre and the Jacobin in Paris. In the Vendée, the rebels are defeated at the Battle of Cholet in October and then finished off at the Battle of Savonnet in December, prompting the French General Westerman to report to his superiors, the Vendée is no more. On the Mediterranean, Toulon is recaptured by the French, helped by their young artillery commander Bonaparte. In Lyon, hundreds, even thousands of defeated rebels are executed by cannon. And in Paris, the guillotine ends the lives of Marie Antoinette, the Duc d'Orléans, General Houchard and none other than Jacques-Pierre Brissot, who had led France into the war in the first place. In the Low Countries, the Allies are disturbed in their siege of Mauberge by General Jourdain, who attacks with 45,000 men. He's driven off on 15th October, but the following day forces the Austrians to retire. Having lost more men than the Allies, Jourdain digs in to defend Mauberge, expecting a counterattack, which doesn't come, and the front remains largely quiet for the rest of the year. On the Rhine, there is significant fighting, with the French suffering a defeat at Kaiserslautern at the hands of the Prussians in late November, before the French counterattack and breakthrough in late December, clearing the Alsace region of Allied forces. Mainz is recaptured from the Allies, so the French end the year well on the Rhine too. On Saint-Domingue, the French commissioner Sontenax, who is after sign-off from the National Assembly for his abolition of slavery, sends three representatives of the island to Paris to make the case for emancipation. 
Well, Charles, we'll come to the Vendée in a second. But first of all, in terms of the war we've been following all season between France and the Allies, principally Austria, and it, it looks like this is three months in which the revolution has secured itself. In many ways, the French have made some progress militarily because they, by, by eliminating the Vendée and indeed Toulon, they, they obviously get rid of the threat to their rear. And that means that they can now concentrate on sending troops against the foreign invaders. So a lot of the troops who are at Toulon get sent to fight the Spaniards, for example. But it's important to remember that the French are not carrying all before them. Yes, they win the Battle of Vatigny, um, but at, at more or less the same time, the Prussians are winning a series of battles um, in the Rhineland and on the frontiers of Alsace. Um, it, it, the war is not yet a walkover. So that's the military situation. What about French politics? I mean, this is the terror, but terror has some advantages, perhaps. The Robespierre regime, if we can call it that, has actually addressed many of the problems which the Brissotin completely failed to address. Um, through the application of terror, a system of conscription is now working. Plenty of deserters still, but you, you're getting more recruits coming in. And, and this, again, is basically boosting the military chances of, 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 the, of the revolution in 1794. OK, thanks, Charles. And we'll be looking ahead to next year at the end of this episode. But now, and before we come on to our three main segments for this episode, let's let's spend a little more time than usual in this introductory section looking at something in particular, namely the Vendée. Alex, why is it that we find this region so interesting and so important in this period? Situation in Vendée is, in many respects, a microcosm of, of revolution uh, times two. Uh, the violent opposition uh, in Vendée to the revolution, I don't think could have been predicted in 1789 because the cahiers, the grievances of the rural communities shared many of the grievances of those from elsewhere. However, I can, uh, in reading them, uh, we can identify maybe, uh, two crucial differences. First was that in Vendée, they were less likely to criticize the church. And the region was characterized by this distinctive bocage, right, landscape that we discussed previously. And that in itself certainly uh, cultivated what we later on or today called more of a conservative insular mindset. And it was there on Sundays, right, in the church that the rural community would uh, gather and worship and decided local ma uh, matters. And so religion really mattered to them. OK, that's the religious angle, but it's also very tied up with matters of land and, um, well, matters of property. Opinion makers, so to speak, in Vendée tended to be substantial renters of land on, on these long-term tenancies. And they were oftentimes frustrated by their subordination to the uh, what we now call the bourgeois, the bourgeois owners of land who acted as a middleman between the farmers and and nobles who owned the land, or the farmers and the religious orders who owned the land. And the revolution was therefore resented here, and we see that playing out in 93 throughout it. The revolution resented for having challenged this relationship and destroying the religious culture that was inseparable for life from life itself. The Vendée, to me, marks this deep fissure that uh, uh, appears between what uh, Charles eloquently put as an enlightened, quotation mark, enlightened townspeople and these bumpkin kind of country people with their uh, silly priests. 
Uh, and, and increasingly, right, the uh, rhetoric is, is couched in, in these words. And the terrible loss of life during the 1793 repression now will leave a permanent scar on society and politics. For Republicans, Van Day would be always a fratricidal stab in the back at the moment of revolution's greatest crisis. And for the rebels, the, this insurrection will be seen as a slaughter of the faithful, slaughter of the innocent, just because they demanded a, a, an equal say. And this was just completely brutal, bloody. It was horrific. Throughout 93, we see a massive crackdown, bloody crackdown with, uh, with violence, extreme violence perpetrated on both sides, but certainly the re revolutionary armies with the uh, larger, uh, ever uh, larger force inflicted considerable slaughter on the local population. Well, let's take a look at this slaughter in a little more detail then. And over to you, Charles, to take us through the events of this three months. Where had things got to by the end of September 1793? There was a stalemate. The French Revolutionary Armies couldn't break into the Vendée because of its very difficult terrain. Every time they did, they, they were pounced on and thrown out again. Also, the fact is that the troops who were being sent into the Vendée were useless. They, they, they were the scrapings of the barrel. Um, they were half-armed, half-uniformed, half-trained and poorly officered. And so the Vendéans come out on top. But what the Vendéans can't do is break out. They can't take a port. They're, 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 if you like, contained in this liberated area. Ah, yes, Charles. And you had mentioned that these veteran grizzled soldiers who'd been uh, in Mainz had been able to come along. What difference did they make? Well, they, they, they were worlds apart from the useless rabble which the, which the French Revolution had been fighting with in the Vendée hitherto. Their tough, experienced troops, veteran troops, infused by hatred of the counter-revolution, um, and they know what they're doing. And they're also present in very considerable numbers, about, about 20,000 men or something like that. And they advance into the, into the Vendée, I think you should mention that they, they also bring great capable leaders. I mean, Kleber is here, Marceau is here, Westermann is here. They're capable leaders that bring necessary skill in dealing with this problem. Yes, yeah, abs absolutely. I do agree with that. Yes, I mean, the, 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 the Army of Mayenne, as it's called, is very well commanded. You know, again, the commanders who'd been fighting in the Vendée were, for the most part, second-rate figures. And this force crashes into the liberated area if you like it advances to a place called Cholet which is in the northeast of the region and there it is attacked by virtually every man that the, the the Vendée can put into the field and you get this ferocious battle at Cholet which seesawed to and fro but ultimately um, that the Vendéans are defeated and they're, they, they're, they're fighting with their back to the River Loire and they're pushed back towards the River Loire, and they get to a place called saint Florent. It's only a small place. And there, they, they, they can't go any further. I mean, they're trapped. And so they manage to escape across the river. They, they get lots and lots of small boats. They're ferried across the river. And then you begin, you, you embark on what's called La Grande Vire de Galerne, the, the great turning of the wind. And this is the moment when the sort of bitter truths of the situation begin to become clear. Yeah, yes, absolutely, because the, the, the Vendéans no longer have the protection of the Bocage. They're in open country. 
but they still do incredibly well. They, they march northwards all the way to the, to the English Channel at Granville, which, uh, which is at the base of the Cherbourg Peninsula. They besiege Granville, but are held off because, they, they, as usual, they can't take towns. And all of this is done in increasingly awful weather, um, pouring of rain, bitter cold, because it's now November. They retreat southwards again in a frantic attempt to get back into the Vendée. They, they win a couple of, of quite substantial victories. They attack Angers, which is one of the main bridges across the Loire, but are beaten back. Again, they can't take towns. And as they fall back, they're attacked at Le Mans by this concentric movement of forces coming against them. And they suffer an appalling defeat. And, and the remnant, and it's now a remnant, flees westwards towards towards the, the um, Atlantic coast, again trying to, trying to find help from the British. And they are caught and surrounded uh, at a place called Savonnet, uh, which is uh, just northwest of Nantes, and, and they're wiped out. Well, it's a horrible story of defeat for these rebel soldiers. This story shouldn't be told in, ch- in terms of just military movements. It should be told in terms of, tra- of human tragedy. The Vendean forces, well, there are about 80,000 people involved in La Grande Vire de Galerne. But only about half of them are combatants. All the rest are women and children, old, old people. And this horde, as it stumbles across France, is, is, is assailed by hunger. Um, it's assailed by dysentery. It's assailed by typhus. And every step of the way, it's losing people. When it gets to Le Mans um, and it's attacked, the result is a terrible massacre. One of the most grisly finds um, in recent combat archaeology in France was a mass grave with about 70 bodies in it. I think all but about five of these bodies are women and children. And these aren't people who have been shot in the crossfire. These are people who have been hacked to pieces. You can see that the, the, the sword blows and the bayonet thrusts on their bones. This, this, this is vile, vile, horrific stuff. And then we move on to the, if you like, the, the pacification of, of the region. Um, we've already mentioned how large numbers of people were drowned um, in Nantes. They were simply put on barges and then sunk in the river. Um, but you also had what were called infernal columns, which were basically colonial war style punitive columns, which are sent out into the Vendée and they burn down every village in sight and they kill and they, well, they kill and they go on killing. Yeah. So, so a, a, a very, very horrific story. And even in military terms, one, one that simply dwarfs anything going on elsewhere. And so to our three main segments for this final episode of Season 1. In Episode 7, we had double the dose of Alex Mikabaridze, and here he is once again, this time taking us through the struggle for Toulon all the way to its bitter end. And once again, the Napoleonic quarterly is about to take a close look at a certain young artillery officer. One of the things that Napoleon um, really brought to the table was his appreciation, uh, his understanding of, of... of geography and, and uh, the location uh, of, of Toulon and his insistence uh, on securing this crucial 
peninsula that was controlling the passage from the Mediterranean Sea into the inner bay of, of Toulon. Uh, and what we see is, is that um, in November, all right, in early November, uh, the commander of the Revolutionary Army, Carteau, was dismissed uh, for ineffectiveness of the siege. Uh, he has been already entering uh, second, you know, third month, essentially, uh, and not, with no results. And so he was replaced by Francois Made Dupé. Uh, Dupé is uh, is one of those uh, young, you know, newly minted uh, generals of the revol you know, revolutionary generals who previously worked as a doctor uh, and. Uh, who doesn't really understand the the military needs or what needs to be done for the uh, for the army to capture the city and it is through his indecision or lack of understanding uh, that we see the fall of the fault margrave this crucial um uh, fort on that peninsula on the 16th of november uh, now dope will resign in the wake of this setback and he will be replaced, fortunately, by a career soldier, an experienced man, uh, by the name of uh, Jacques-François uh, Coquier, or, or Dugomier, as he will be known. Uh, Dugomier uh, had a meeting with young Bonaparte, and he understood the virtue of the plan that he was proposing, and that is to target that peninsula, to secure the, the forts that were located on that peninsula, and then to target the British Navy with the uh, uh, land-based uh, batteries. And so on the 20th of November, therefore, there we see the preparations for that assault. It is part of that assault that you see that story of Napoleon sending out the battery, uh, which uh, was exposed to the British counterfire, and that you know soldiers uh, had, a, uh, had some fear of uh, holding on to and, and the story goes that napoleon named it the man without a fear right the battery of the man without fear yes. as a way of psychologically yes. give them the boost of course once it becomes clear what what the french are doing then there is um, a british response a preemptive response as you said the goal is to deny the french ability to establish themselves in the peninsula and then uh, to secure batteries and that's when we see a, a sortie which was uh, not just uh, British, but uh, Anglo-Neapolitan. Let's give our Neapolitan uh, <laughs> allies <laughs> due credit. Um, uh, the counterattack, uh, uh, of course, tried to push the French back. Uh, on f but um, it is led uh, by the British uh, General Charles O'Hara, but it is uh, then counterattack counter in turn by, Dugo, uh, by the French forces led by Dugomier and Bonaparte. And it is during this counterattack, uh, during this fighting, that uh, O'Hara is captured and the sortie is de is largely defeated. So by this stage, had have the French got um, Fort Malgrave? By, by the end of November, they will indeed secure the peninsula, which will set the stage for a general assault, which will be uh, they, they will prepare for in the first two weeks of December and decide to storm on, on December 16th, right? So with the British having been repulsed so forcefully, the initiative um, perhaps passes to the French and they're able to, to carry out their plans and make progress. Indeed. Um, the defeat of Sortie was, I think, the last um, real uh, opportunity for the uh, coalition, the Anglo-Neapolitan forces, to uh, prevent the fall of Toulon. Because that Sortie failed... It allowed Dugomier and Bonaparte, who was, by the way, now promoted to a colonel, 
to make preparation for an for a final assault on the little Gibraltar, that crucial uh, fort uh, on the peninsula. Uh, and the assault will be carried out during the night of December 16. Uh, the assault will be successful uh, after their all-night-long fighting, and Bonaparte uh, famously will be injured in, in his thigh with a bayonet. Uh, but with the loss of the little Gibraltar, the position of the Royal Navy in the Bay of Toulon will be untenable. Uh, and as soon as it becomes clear that the French control uh, little Gibraltar, the British uh, start evacuating uh, the bay, effectively leaving the city uh, to its own uh, device. And it's essentially this is because um, the uh, um, French are able to position uh, a battery up there which will then be able to uh, pummel the ships in the in in the bay. Indeed, in the narrow confines of the bay. That's totally decisive. And then and then it's a question of okay, the British it hasn't worked out. They've got to get out quick. But presumably they will they would have been looking to take the French fleet with them. But that's not quite what happened. Indeed, in ideal terms, right? You would be uh, you would be willing to take the captured uh, fleet with you. Uh, but of course, the size uh, uh, of the fleet that they captured, uh, as well as the logistics of removing the ships, was quite uh, daunting. Not to mention the fact that there were quite a few refugees who were trying to leave the city before it, is ta it was taken by the, the Revolutionary Army. And so instead, what we see is that uh, the evacuating forces were decided to set uh, the gunpowder stores, uh, as well as other stores that were in, in, in the arsenal, naval arsenal of Toulon, on fire. Uh, as well as to uh, in inflict as much damage on the ships that could not be evacuated. Now, it, ultimately, we, we see the French will lose nine ships of the line that will be sunk and destroyed in the harbor. Uh, four ships uh, of the line will be removed, uh, along with seven frigates and, and, and uh, several corvettes. And, and so... Once that um, slightly botched destruction uh, uh, <laughs> process has taken place, you do then have the the inhabitants of Toulon, including those refugees, now facing that that retribution. And it was pretty, it, you know, it, it lived up to. I mean, they were right to be worried about it. It was pretty bad, wasn't it? Um, yes and no. In in uh, I mean, you certainly don't want to be one of these, uh, you know, some eight hundred prisoners who were shot or. Uh, uh, executed another way in Toulon Champ de Mar. Uh, so the reprisal was bloody uh, after the Revolutionary Army has taken. But in a larger context uh, of, of the size of the city, uh, the I think the um, or what happened in other cities, um, I think the reprisals in, in, in Toulon are not as bloody. Um, <laughs> Alexander Mikabaridze there and Charles let me ask you we're just laughing here because um, Alex is very shy of himself I think <laughs> would it be fair to say anyway Charles let me ask you you must be fairly impressed by the way that Bonaparte is conducting himself here I mean this is this new young kid on the block who uh, we might predict great things for well in many ways um, 
yes, he does carry the day at too long. He comes up with with a plan that works. Um, he he appreciates what the decisive point is, um, and and he he shows great competence and indeed a considerable amount of personal courage. Um, so yes, you can you, and you can see that that Toulon is an important step in his making. It's when he first really attracts attention. You know, he was the right man in the right place at the right time. Um, he takes a leading role in getting the job done, and that does his prospects no harm whatsoever. We mustn't forget, Charles, that the uh, British in Toulon, well, it wasn't just the British, that there were some Spanish and Neapolitan elements there as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, Spain and Naples had both joined the War of the First Coalition, and they... On one level, they play a minor role, and clearly neither of them are going to be as important as, say, Austria. Um, but they, they are important regional powers, um, which Britain has to work with in the, in the Mediterranean theatre of war. The result of Toulon, in, in terms of um, British relations with both the Spaniards and the Neapolitans, is pretty disastrous. The, 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 the Neapolitans and the Spaniards both feel that the British uh, had, had conducted the defence very, very poorly. There's considerable argument about um, the disposition of the French Navy. I mean, you know, why, should, why should Britain have got the ships? Why shouldn't it be Naples? And so, so on and so forth. And of course, the, when we talk about the Neapolitan forces, we're talking about the Kingdom of Two Sicilies with its capital in Naples and the, the, the Bourbons on the on the throne there and talking of the mediterranean and and that that perspective that um might not um have paid so much attention to um i think alex you you you're touching on this in your your latest book in terms of what the ottomans were making of toulon indeed um in fact uh, that's one one of the things that surprised me is the uh, reverberations of toulon uh, outside france uh, my new book uh, explores the life uh, and, and career of uh, the famed Russian general Mikhail Kutuzov. Right? The, later on, uh, he plays an important role in the Napoleonic Wars. But here in 1793, he's, he is the Russian ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. And reading his uh, diplomatic correspondence, I was struck by the time and effort he actually devoted to the issue of Toulon. And specifically, he is engaged in this diplomatic intrigue and kind of rivalry with the uh, representative of the French Republic, uh, Descorche. And Kutuzov's letters time and again complain about Descorche spreading what was what Kutuzov refers to as the false news, which, which gives me a chuckle because of fake news that we are dealing with. But Kutuzov is complaining that Descorche and the French in Istanbul, um, in Constantinople, we're celebrating the great victory at Toulon already in September and October of 1793 and trying to convince the Turks that the French already have won there and therefore it will be in the uh, Turkish interest to side with the French and join the uh, anti-coalition uh, war that France was waging. In fact, in October of 93, Kutuzov writes this uh, letter complaining that the French, quote, publicly celebrate the recapture of Toulon and the crushing defeat of the king of Prussia, who, they allege, has been already defeated, uh, uh, has been wounded in battle. And then two months later, Kutuzov complains that the French are assuring the uh, uh, Ottomans that because of the victory of Toulon, now they can incite a massive uprising in Poland 
and, quote, 100,000 Polish troops will be ready to launch a diversion against Russia if the Turks make the first move. And so the Russians are actually very concerned about this false information because they spread far and wide, partly because the Russian diplomatic officials in the Ottoman provinces, the consuls, are eagerly reporting on them and creating this echo chamber in which there is a growing fear in Russia that the new war is coming with the Ottomans because of the situation in France and specifically the recapture of Toulon, which is fascinating. Oh, it's so interesting. I'm really interested by how the news was, you know, digested at the time. And it's one of the really, really excellent things to look at. And Zach White has done a really good uh, episode on his Napoleonicist podcast, looking at the way that the British press reported the Peninsula War, which I thoroughly recommend. But, but you know, it's these reverberations of these. This is big news uh, all, all the time. So that's that's all great stuff. Now, then, let's move on to um, uh, the situation in Flanders and the Low Countries and and we've heard from Paul DeMay in the last episode about how the French successfully found a way of shoving the Duke of York away from his siege of Dunkirk. Well, now it's the turn of uh, Philip Ball uh, returning again to the podcast to update us on the next fortress that the French hope to relieve at Maubeuge. Right, so um, while... while the British were at Dunkirk. The, the, the Austrians thought they'd snap up Malberge, which is actually behind them. They've gone past it. So they right. sort of have to come back and round. There's a, a big fortified camp in front of it as well. So they've got to take that too. They besiege Malberge and in their usual fashion. So they begin to, they, they take all the positions around it and they dig trenches around it. And um, so it's very laborious and methodical. And laborious. Painful. And obviously, meanwhile, the French are sending a force to relieve them they 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 going to come and they want to end the siege because yeah. uh, they've sorted out the british and all that malarkey up there so that, that the pressure has been relieved from other parts of the line so the french are able to send a big force under under jordan uh to watingy so it's it's a two day battle jordan who uh, later becomes a marshal of france uh, is in charge of quite a large uh, French army. He trogs up through uh, through some woods. The Austrians become aware of his presence. They carry on with the siege. See, this is the thing, and perhaps the mistake. They continue the siege. They keep they keep Malberge blockaded, and they pull away part of their force to deal with this relief army. Once again, there's a certain pattern forming here. The Austrians are on a ridge. They're dug in. Uh, they've got a series of villages, Watinji being in the centre. It's a strong position, so strong that Coburg says, if the French can get me out of this position, I shall, I shall wear the ragged trousers of a sans-culotte. And uh, he gets taunted about it later. <laughs> Did he actually say that? Allegedly. Yes. It's another one of those things. Well, very that, good. Yeah. It sounds good, yeah. It sounds good. You know, he goes, goes, goes well in a book. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so he's there. And once again, it's a seesaw kind of battle. The village of Watinji itself falls, I think, seven times. And, you know, they go in and they go out and they go in and they go out. It's quite wearing sort of reading this sometimes you almost feel like you're involved in the battle yourself it's like, oh good lord and they're going back back again the first day it doesn't go very well for the french at all they can't break through and what happens on the second day so on the second day 
they switch their troops to attack one side. So they just it's it's basically they have a uh, a holding action on one side and they push through and they concentrate on Vatinji itself. They decide right. that that is the key to the Austrian position, and if they take that, they will get rid of them. And I, Again, phenomenal amount of, of fighting around, around this village, and they force the Austrians out. Coburg pretty much gives up. So, it's, <laughs> so, so it, once again, he's uh, after, after, after the previous battle where he decided he'd lost when he hadn't. Again, the Austrians don't think they've lost. Uh -huh. there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of discontent in the Austrian uh, officer corps that, that they've retreated from this position. If they'd have just stayed there, the French had had it. And the French don't move. They they take they take the village and they just stay there, and they don't move at all for some considerable time. So they've they've had a serious kicking. They lick their wounds for several days. They they're not able to follow up on this victory. Yeah. But Coburg decides that in 18th century terms he's lost and he withdraws and that's it. You know he uh, they they pull back and. The French then go on the offensive eventually. So there's a little, little, little bit of a lull while while Jordan gains his breath. It doesn't, they don't even realise that Malbert, that the Austrians have gone at Malberge. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a peasant girl wanders in one day, uh, and they say, "How do you get in here?" Oh, I just walked in. Well, what about all the Austrians? Oh, they've gone. Really, oh, really, this is bonkers. Don't even realise. Totally bonkers. Yeah. So they, that's it. That's it. They've all they've all gone. And uh, yeah. What were, the, what were the strategic results of the battle? Well, it basically puts the French back in the game. So th th they've been able to recoup by uh, by the British basically sending their army off to Dunkirk, releasing the pressure. They've been able to build up. They've re rebuilt their army. They've been the army's been reorganised. They're resupplied. They're they're reinforced. They're they're ready to go on the offensive again. And off they go. Off and they actually, go. there is a there is a French offensive in late October, but it, it sort of starts stalling by November, if, if I'm right. Yeah, well, it's it's one of those things that they should really have given up. You see, according to the rules, you know, 18th century rules of warfare. You're supposed to go into winter quarters as soon as it starts. The weather starts getting bad. The roads are muddy. You can't fight properly anymore. But the French keep going. They carry on. I mean, they're not doing a very good job. They're, they're you know, they're attacking here. They're attacking there. They attack Newport, where uh, which is uh, one of our um, one of our supply ports, causes a lot of a uh, lot of worry in the in the British circle. Not. With the Duke of York, he's not concerned about the loss of uh, of his port. <laughs> Rich, so, I say, if, if any if anything points to you, the fact that, that he's not the um, there's been an effort in the last fifty years or so to sort of rehabilitate the Duke of York as a military commander. So, <laughs> but you're not persuaded. <laughs> no, not at all. Everything I think I, I read, you think the man's a complete idiot. I mean, he's not. <laughs> but this is an army, a very small army that is supplied. From England by the sea through the yes. ports of Ostend and Newport, and if you lose them, you're completely cut off, and you're entirely dependent then on your very unreliable allies to supply you. And uh, it's not really a very good idea. Right. So um, they send Grey, Earl Grey, the the, the the father of the teabag man, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, is uh, is sent to Newport, he, he abandons his um, expedition to the West Indies and uh, urgently marches over there and, and, and saves Newport and Ostend from, from Van Damme, who, uh, again, is a famous Napoleonic commander. But uh, 
is starting his career at this stage, a rapacious pillager. Uh, <laughs> he burns anything that, do- that doesn't move. And if it right. moves, you know, church bells, money, cows, he'll have the lot. So but, he'll do uh, well in this period, yeah. yeah. He's, he's currently besieging the, the Newport uh, with the guns that we left behind at Dunkirk. <laughs> so nothing's wasted. So uh, very good stuff. That fails. These uncoordinated efforts don't really gain the French anything, but they wear the Allies down. Uh, right, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost turned into a war of attrition. Because so although, they, they want to be in winter quarters, but they're, well, but they're not. Still working. It's just, ah. Oh, it's just not the really, done thing. It's not the done thing. Now, the, Austrian, the Austrians have made serious um, inroads in Alsace. They've taken, they've taken large chunks of Alsace. They've broken through the lines of Wissembourg with the sort of reluctant assistance of the Prussians. The Prussians are sort of involved, but uh, because they're so reluctant, they're not able to, to make the, uh, the gains that they want to make by the end of the campaigning season. And the French actually come back and chuck them out. So they're thrown <laughs> back across the Rhine. Unbelievable. They're beaten. We can't have this. You know, <laughs> this is most unsporting. So, uh, so it's 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 getting to a point now where the Austrians have pretty much had enough. In their eyes, they've done everything right. They've gone out. They they they've either won or not lost badly in every battle. Their troops have shown themselves to be superior in pretty much every every encounter. But the French are still coming, and it's just it's wearing to them. I think that's the thing that there's a sort of. A, there's a, there's a sort of feeling of fatigue that comes when you when you read about the accounts of what the Austrians are doing. And- what would you say was the position at the end of the year then? You know, but but by the time New Year's Eve arrived, what was the state of play? Right. So, well, the British are in Ghent, having a whale of a time by all accounts. Yeah. Uh, but, but strategically, things are pretty much as they were at the beginning. Although the French are now in a stronger position, the start lines are pretty much redrawn. It's almost like back to our game of chess. That we've had that game. Everyone's back in place. In terms of territory, there's been very little change. A few fortresses have fallen here and there. The foot has been taken off the neck. You know, the, the, the pressure has been released yeah, yeah. in a position to start resurging. They have plans. Everyone's got plans for the following year, but the French have got plans. And they, for the first time, there's a possibility they might be able to put those plans into place. Their armies are still a mess. You know, they're still... In discipline, they're still having trouble paying and feeding them. Yeah. But things are looking better. They're, they're, the generals who they haven't executed are getting good at their jobs. The troops are getting more <laughs> experienced. You know, well, it's, it's, it's all, almost but, as if not being executed is a crucial part of the uh, professional development process. It is. Well, they've got to a point where nobody wanted to be in charge of the Army de Nord anymore. It was yeah. referred to Poison Chalice. Any volunteers, yeah. Shard, who commands at Honshoot, he, he says at his trial, I didn't want to be in charge. I wanted to be a colonel of cavalry. You made me be in charge. <laughs> and you can't blame me for this, but they do. And they execute him. And it happens, you know, that, that the Army de Nord particularly gets through a vast number of commanders in the space of a year. You know, it's 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 almost it's like, who's he? Where did he yeah. come from? The, the position is looking much stronger for the next year. But the Allies are also, they've also been reinforced. They've been refreshed. They've had a bit of a rest. They've had a bit of a breather. If it, if it was a boxing match, you'd say you, 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 it was even money. You know, you, you'd think 
both both contenders had a chance. So that, that, that's where it ended at, at, at the end of uh, 1793, really. Well, Philip Bull there, and we've been very down, Charles, about the French army, the shaky nature of their conscripts, the professionalism of the Ancien regimes that they're up against. But just to put it to you, isn't the stark truth here that by the end of 1793, the situation in Flanders, maybe not the Rhine at least, but in Flanders, it has changed significantly. So what's changed? I think one can exaggerate the extent to which the situation has changed on the frontier. Actually, you've got a military stalemate. The, the, the French win at Watigny, but they're defeated in Alsace. Um, it's basically even Stevens. However, what has changed is, first of all, that by December, the Vendéen revolt has collapsed and indeed Toulon has surrendered. The net result being that the French no longer have to deal with internal enemies. And secondly, the advances, if you like, brought by uh, the Committee of Public Safety um, in terms of control of the state. In other words, making conscription function through the application of terror, strengthening the authority of the government through the dispatch of the representative en mission. All of these things are actually going to ensure that in 1794, the French armies are going to be that much stronger. Also, of course, finally, um, the, the amalgam um, is going to come into force, whereby um, the, the, the French army is, is basically rendered organisationally much stronger. OK, Charles, so you're very clearly drawing a link between the progress that's possible militarily and actually the government in Paris in being able to get a grip. And I suppose the question is, you're talking about structural reforms, and there's a few of those coming. And in fact, in the next episode, we'll be talking about things like the amalgam. Um, but another important thing you mentioned are these representative en mission, these essentially, they're politicos who are seconded, would you say, or they're just kind of keeping an eye on the general, the generals on their staff. But Alex, have I got that about right? Yes, uh, although the representatives' powers were far, uh, far more all-encompassing than simply uh, being seconded to the general. Um, in fact, on October 10, 1793, the National Convention decreed that the provisional government of France is revolutionary until peace. And that declaration is very important because it effectively proclaims emergency situation in France. All government bodies and military units were thus placed under control of the Committee of Public Safety, which then reported weekly to the convention. And this decree effectively creates a situation where the political officers, these representatives on mission, can now wield tremendous power. No quarter shall be given to the revolution's enemies. But at the same time, the French Revolution were warned that the convention, right, this revolutionary government, was the sole source of political initiative. 
Yeah. Uh, Okay. so what were these deputies up to then? What what sort of things were filling their days? So the deputies were sent or these representatives were sent to specific regions uh, with sweeping powers to maintain the revolutionary order of the day, to to instill the discipline, to effectively enforce the laws the National Convention made. When it came to the military, deputies on mission were given the power to effectively oversee the operations of the military, and uh, if necessary, overrule the orders given by the commanders. In fact, the Vatini that we've just listened to is a good example of it, because here we see a clash, a repeated clash, actually, of, of ideas and views of a commander-in-chief, which is uh, uh, Jourdan, and the political officer, who is Lazare Carnot. And Lazare Carnot is a, is a distinguished kind of a revolutionary uh, organizer of victory and, and, and as an administrative man uh, responsible for the victory of the revolutionary armies, he, you know, his skills cannot be denied. But here at Vatini, his tactical suggestions leave much to be desired. In fact, you see Carnot later on effectively rewriting the account of the battle in, in an effort to deny Jourdan his contribution and claim it for himself. So the representatives on mission, you know, they interve- intervened in the military operations, not necessarily to a good uh, uh, to a good result. Now, their role, however, was crucial in maintaining a draconian discipline. In 1793-94, 84 generals were would be executed and more than 350 officers dismissed. And that's effectively how you win this war if you're French by laying down the law and keeping it real. (laughs) Keeping it real, yeah. Okay, very good. Now, it's been a while since episode two, when we had our first segment on the Sandemang slave revolt. But hopefully you've noticed in the headline development section that we have been trying to keep up with what's been the uh, various slow-burning developments since then, most notably, I suppose, the French commissioner Sontenax's unilateral abolition of slavery in August 1793. Well, the situation has become something of a mess by the final months of the year. You've got Sontenac's in charge for the French, but the Grand Blanc plantation owners are very much against him and are welcoming the British in open arms. And then the Spanish, of course, whose colony, Santo Domingo, is in the other half of Haiti, the eastern half. They're being helped now by the slave revolt leader, Toussaint Louverture. Fair to say, it's a complicated picture. But thankfully, once again, we have Christy Pekikaro, Associate Professor at George Mason University in Virginia, to talk us through the situation. And I began by asking her what the British were up to. What was the British approach to Saint-Domingue after their declaration of war with France? And I bet it's got something to do with straightforward greed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bingo. Uh, Indeed, uh, for the British, uh, the slave revolt and the political turmoil in Saint-Domingue was a golden opportunity. Mm -hmm, I choose my uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to take control of the of this most lucrative colony in the entire Caribbean. 
so, um, so interestingly, uh, the the white I, uh, the white French planters uh, welcomed the British with open arms. And in fact, I, I wanted to say this because it's so it's so funny. So, a British force uh, of about six hundred soldiers arrives in the city of Jérémy on September twentieth, seventeen ninety three. Right. And the French literally cheer uh, their arrival, uh, uh, crying "Vive les Anglais!" Um, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that this is the only time in French history that this phrase uh, has been uh, has, yes. been, has been cried by by any French. <laughs> So, uh, Very possibly. <laughs> yes, uh, I think it's likely. So, um, in any case, these planters had arranged uh, with the with the British Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger um, that Saint Domingue would come under British sovereignty, um, and so uh, their understanding was that the British would uphold chattel slavery on the island, thus allowing the planters to continue to maintain their authority and uh, life. Oh, I see. Yes. So that explains why the British reinstated slavery so quickly. It was all part of the deal. Yes, it was part of the deal uh, with the planters, and it was also uh, part of that uh, that the the greed um, of the British, in the sense that um, even if the British were not to annex that island permanently, which seemed unlikely given the the forces that they were able to muster and send um, to Saint Domingue, uh, Pitt was thinking that taking Saint Domingue uh, would be an ace in the hole during eventual peace negotiations with France. Ah, yes. 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 And in the meantime, would allow those incredible profits generated by the island to funnel directly into the British Treasury. <laughs> very helpful, very handy indeed. And so, how, do, how I mean, things had, had developed throughout the period. Um, uh, you know, in 1793, in August, you had, had a big moment when Sontenax, who, who we'd heard about before, had, uh, had abolished uh, slavery on, on, the, on the, the French side. I suppose that's a, you know, taking the alternative approach. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, once again, there's a question of uh, whether uh, this was an ideological move uh, for Sontonax as a crusader for the rights of free men of color, committed to the revolutionary cause, or uh, if this was expediency. Um, and again, I think it's very much both. Uh, so we have this uh, uprising of the Grand Blanc, uh, counter-revolutionary forces uh, that I spoke about in Le Cap with the government. Um, and so Sontonax uh, starts incrementally. Uh, it doesn't sort of uh, start as a, as a major declaration. It starts as these sort of incremental promises to enslaved rebels in the environs uh, of Le Cap. He offers them a bargain of their amnesty and freedom in exchange for entering the, con the conflict against Galbo and the white planter militia. So uh, several thousand uh, freedom fighters take him up on this and invade the city and they really kind of turned the tide of what's happening there in that battle. Of course, a mass exodus of white uh, colonists uh, then ensues. And that's sort of another motif of this whole period is people, those people are leaving. Um, but uh, the British and the Spanish had also entered into the conflict. Um, and uh, with them was uh, the, the famed black Spartacus of the Haitian War of Independence, Toussaint Louverture, who's fighting for the Spanish at the time. Yes. Now let's definitely bring him in because um, yeah, he's going to be someone we're going to want to follow quite closely through through this um, this story. At this stage, Louverture was fighting for the Spanish. Why? Why was that? But but maybe first, who who was he? Where did he come from? 
So Toussaint, uh, Toussaint Louverture was born Toussaint Breda. Uh, like many enslaved people in the West Indies, he was given a Christian name and no other surname or a surname that indicated huh. a tie. A to a specific plantation. So Breda was the name of the plantation on which he worked. Uh, right. And Louverture, the one who opens things up, uh, was a name that he gave himself later. Um, so, uh, so Toussaint uh, was uh, born enslaved, um, but uh, freed himself uh, sometime in the late 1770s uh, and began renting a small coffee plantation and renting about a dozen enslaved laborers. So he himself was a part of that system originally and was oh, able right. to yes and he was able to amass some personal wealth um, uh, before joining the freedom fight uh, in its first explosive manifestation in that revolt of 1791. Well just as a quick question how did he manage to free himself in the first place? Yeah, it's very interesting. So uh, many of the papers um, are uh, unclear uh, in the history of these individuals about what happened. It seems that Louverture and others uh, were able to buy their own freedom. They were able to purchase freedom. Uh, okay. Others were freed uh, willingly uh, by their masters. Um, I've actually heard a bit of both in relation to Louverture, um, and so uh, and so that you know, it, it, for for many of these figures, it's not entirely clear. Okay, and but but, but so he's fighting for the Spanish at this stage. Um, but how about a very quick sort of potted summary of what he's been up to um, between then and now, as it were. Yes. So, um, so what ends up uh, happening is that um, just in that 1791 uh, revolt, he uh, plays a role in uh, creating an alliance with Spain. This is, of course, an, an unofficial alliance because this is a group of of, uh, of slaves uh, who are rebelling. Um, yeah. But the uh, uh, give over some supplies. And over time, uh, 1792, and then finally in May, uh, through May uh, and June, uh, through to June 1793, this uh, alliance is actually formalized. Um, and Louverture becomes an officer in uh, the Spanish uh, army there. So he is, uh, you know, fighting alongside the Spanish with the Spanish, as is Jean-François uh, and Biassou. Uh, both of them, these, re these uh, uh, rebellion leaders are there as well, fighting with the Spanish um, against the French. And even when Sontonax uh, makes his declaration uh, of uh, freedom on August 29th, 1793, it does not uh, sway Louverture. Uh, because right. this, this missive, of course, comes just from Sontonax. This is kind of a unilateral decision made on the fly, not in consultation with the actual revolutionary government, the, uh, the assembly uh, back in France. Um, so so he, he doesn't buy it and continues uh, because there's a sense that it is only with the Spanish um, and alongside the British that uh, they will win their freedom. Okay, that makes sense. Having said that, this is really complicated. You've got so many different groups here. You've got the planters, the slaves, the British, the French, the Spanish. How, how do we sum up the situation at the end of 1793? What were the main prospects for each of these groups? The best way to summarize it is to say that this was a moment of, of utter turmoil. Um, the, the white 
planters and, and all results were mixed. So the white planters were mm. happy that the British had arrived, as we remember, uh, but they yeah. were also sorely disappointed in the small size of the forces that had landed on the island, which were in no way large enough to take over Saint-Domingue as the planters had hoped. So uh, this leads to a continued exodus uh, from uh, people's homes and ultimately from the island. So for mm. these uh, Grand Blanc uh, white planters, it's not uh, looking particularly hopeful. Um, How about the slaves? For the enslaved, uh, they had uh, ostensibly won their freedom, uh, but only as declared by uh, one of the commissioners, not by the revolutionary government uh, back in France. So what, what uh, does yeah. freedom really mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the British are you know, doing the best, but they must have realized that they're never going to succeed to take over the whole thing with just such a paltry force. Yes, well, uh, one might imagine that uh, the British uh, had uh, thought as much, but it does not seem so, for they continued to expand their efforts in Saint-Domingue uh, in the following uh, two years. And so uh, so far from it, uh, they were to sink many more lives uh, and uh, and pounds into this effort. Um, yeah. And, you know, the French, uh, remember, we're at the end of 1793, we're in the middle of the reign of terror uh, in uh, in France. We're in the moment of Robespierre. Uh, mm. has been assassinated. The Levé en masse has been declared in August in order to mobilize French citizens in the war uh, with England and Spain. Um, and the National Convention was expanding its direct power. So they have a huge domestic and international uh, mess in the continental sphere. How much could they even pay attention to what was happening uh, in the colonies at this time? Really, the outcome of all of this was anyone's guess, and no one could have imagined the sea change that awaited in the following year. So there's Christy Picicaro, who will be returning in season two to provide more updates on developments on Saint-Domingue. And if you haven't already, you can listen to my in-depth interview with her on Black Lives in the 1790s, which got pretty deep, to be honest, I have to say. But I suppose these are pretty big issues that we're dealing with. Alex, I bet you could have fitted a chapter um, in your latest book, um, uh, Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, on the 1790s in the West Indies Inn, if, if, if your book had been covering the 1790s, because um, there's so much going on. Uh, uh, but I suppose by the end of 1793, it just seems like it's, it's a bit of a mess. Um, well, the whole period is a mess. <laughs> and yes... Uh, um, the uh, the events in the in, in the uh, Caribbean um, uh, are quite daunting. In fact, not just the chapter; entire books uh, can be devoted to to the entirety of the uh, situation in Haiti or what will be Haiti Saint Domingue, whether it's French or the Spanish, Spanish side of it. But over as you as you mentioned in the traditional narrative, we oftentimes uh, ignore it um, and be, as a sideshow. Which is which? It is anything but. The events that uh, we're grappling in on the island of Saint Domingue are, uh, are going to the core of what the revolution is. It's about the extent of freedom. It's about the nature of 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 sovereignty. It's about who we are, citizens of 
of, of the republic or monarchy. Therefore, this complexity has to be brought back to the core of the narrative. Charles, what are your views? And I, I tell you what, I'd love to ask you about this delegation that's on their way across the Atlantic. What would they have been thinking? I mean, they wouldn't have known that Briso had just been executed, one of the uh, voices that they might have hoped would have helped support them in their call for emancipation. But, uh, you know, th- this is really where all the hopes of the uh, slave uh, rebe- rebels on Saint-Domingue would have, would have been pinned. Could they persuade the French in the National Assembly to agree to Sontanax's uh, abolition of slavery? Well, there's, there's not really a lot more to say than that. They essentially, um, if, you, if you like, hope to legitimise the, the, the slave rebellion and, and thereby, well, obviously ameliorate the conditions of the, of, of, of the slaves in Saint-Domingue. Um, it, it, it was as simple as that, really. What I prefer to talk about, thinking about it, is much, much more something which crops up with regard to Britain. In the autumn of 1793, the first of many, many thousands of British troops who get sent to the Caribbean turn up at, at, at Saint-Domingue and they, and they invade the country. In many pro-French narratives of the Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, and in many Twitter discussions, for example, about the Napoleonic Wars, over and over again, you get this argument that Britain is essentially an imperialist power. Britain is, is fighting an imperial war. Britain is out to get colonies. Britain is entirely selfish. Yes. I mean, I have to say, isn't that right? I mean, you know, the British love to play the board game of um, uh, expansionism and with a prize like Saint-Domingue, you know, up for grabs, as it were, surely it was a really obvious thing to do to try and just grab it. No, it's, it's, it, it's, it really isn't like that at all. There were elements in Britain which were strongly colonialist. There were elements in Britain which, which argued, if you like, for a blue water strategy, a global strategy. But those two points are not quite the same. Somebody who is an imperialist will say, let's go and get Saint-Domingue because we want a colony. Somebody who is a globalist will say, let's go and get Saint-Domingue because that will be a massive blow against the French. Ah, yes, I see the difference. The British government is, is, is criticised even by some British politicians for quote-unquote filching sugar islands. But actually, filching sugar islands made perfect sense because every time you took a French colony, let alone one as, as, as important and productive as Saint-Domingue, every time you took a French colony, you reduced France's income by X percent, and indeed, you boosted Britain's income by X percent, whilst at the same time, and finally, actually preserving the security of other British possessions, like, for example, Jamaica. Um, so in other words, um, a colonial offensive made perfect sense in terms of strategy in Europe. And just to finally knock the imperialist argument on the head, what did the British do with the vast majority of the colonial gains that they made in the Revolutionary Wars? Handed them back at the peace settlement. They were bargaining counters. Um, I, I agree with Charles, is that um, I think the, the British policy here is very complex and it cannot be simply boiled down to the imperial acquisition because as Charles pointed out um, time and again whether at the end of the Revol- French Revolutionary Wars or later on at the 
end of Napoleonic Wars, the British are willing to give up, and they do, the acquisition, the colonial acquisitions they have made. The decision, the British decision uh, to invade and, and, and intervene in the slave revolt in Saint-Domingue, for me, cause, poses a, a, a different kind of questions. Uh, is it about the British West Indies, uh, you know, and, and the impact that the loss of America had on, 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 on them in the wake of American Revolutionary War? Or how do we reconcile, right? Oh, let's say, how do we reconcile Pitt's, uh, William Pitt's, right, Prime Minister Pitt's uh, pension for free trade, right, make the, the government more or less interested in acquiring these colonies with the also his uh, notion for uh, abolition of slave trade uh, and the, uh, the reality of, of the island having a slave-based uh, economy. Did the government, the British government, intend to annex Saint-Domingue even if the Bourbons were restored on the French throne? Um, I cannot envision that scenario, right? So I think here we deal with a complex phenomenon uh, that needs to be looked from a multiple points of view. I can see that it is complex and there's more than one way of skinning a cat here. It just seems to me that it's almost two sides of the same coin, denying French possessions in the Caribbean and grabbing them for yourself that they're both good things and both make good sense on their own terms but they're not necessarily mutually exclusive except that they are not trying to deny the french the colonies so they all grab the french colonies that as such see um is again it, do we see the the british intent to actually take Saint-Domingue from the French? Or is it something else, right? Again, what if the, uh, the French Revolutionary Wars ended with the restoration of monarchy in 1795? Would the Saint-Domingue be returned to, the, to France? I think yes, because that's later on, that's what the Brit British do with other colonies that they claimed from France, they returned it back to France. So what is the goal then here? Well, I, 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 I mean, I would come back to the fact that for all that there were colonialists in the British government, um, their views weren't dominant. Um, the offensive in the West Indies and, and the, the huge effort which the British put in in the West Indies is, is actually primarily seen as a blow against France. It's, you know, it's part of the strategic um, war effort. And in fact, at least in theory, it makes more sense to fight in the Caribbean. You can do you can do more damage in the Caribbean, if you like, than you can do in Europe. And, and the way you can fight this is the damage to the commercial interest uh, rather than necessarily land acquisition. I think that's where uh, I see the war effort aimed at. Okay, so uh, a tug of war uh, on Saint-Domingue, a tug of war in Flanders and on the Rhine, and um, just the most brutal, horrendous situation across France, uh, in the Vendée, in Lyon, in, uh, in Toulon as well. Um, that's the situation at the end of 1793 and at the end of this first series uh, of the Napoleonic Quarterly, this first season. Um, and so to now sum up where we've got to, we uh, are joined once again, um, as we have been throughout, by Professor Alexander Mikabaridze of Louisiana State University, Shreveport, um, and Professor Emeritus Charles Esdale of the University of Liverpool. 
thank you to both of you for all of your comments and insights and uh, suggestions and views during uh, these eight episodes we've had so far what i want to do now is wrap up this this first batch uh, of episodes by talking through those three big themes that we've been looking at and have been popping up in this uh, series so far the wider european situation the the military fighting um, as the revolution struggles for survival and finally the state of the revolution itself but to begin with the wider european situation and uh here the, i guess the, the the thing that's on my mind is that in our episodes for 1792 the focus was very much on the crisis in Eastern Europe, the, the question of what was going to happen about Poland. That was fairly well wrapped up um, in favour of the Russians, I guess, by the end of 1792. But we've kind of ended up focusing much more on France in 1793, and we've rather forgotten about the wider European situation. So I'm feeling slightly self-conscious about that, particularly as I've been talking up just how global this podcast is going to be. We've contracted to just France. Charles, might I ask you for a summary of the wider European situation in 1792, and then all taking us all the way up to 1793? Okay, um, Eastern Europe temporarily has gone quiet. Poland has been partitioned a second time. The Polish Revolution appears to be put back in its box. Russia is not engaged in, 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 in any war with the, the Ottomans. Eastern Europe is actually relatively quiet in 1793. As it happens, France is where it's at. Now, in, in terms of the military situation, we've already said quite a lot about the um, essentially stalemate on, on the, the, the northern front. I might also point to the fact that a large Spanish army is still sitting on a chunk of Roussillon down in the south. In fact, the Spaniards were to be the, the last army to be ejected from France. They stayed there till 1794. We'll talk about that later. We've come here to the close of, of, of what's seen as, as the miracle of 1793. Bluntly, I would ask what miracle of 1793? Allied pressure had not been particularly great. Um, it had intensified in the autumn of 1793 on, on the Rhine frontier. The Spaniards had been able to establish themselves in Roussillon, but had been checked from advancing very far. We're at a moment of balance, and uh, which is going to swing very heavily in favour of the French. But if it does so, it is precisely because of the suppression of counter-revolution. And that is why I think that, say, the Battle of Cholet in, 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 in the Vendée, which is one of the biggest battles of the Revolutionary Wars, on the 18th of October 1793, is far more important than Vatigny. And, and we do need to say a lot more about what's happening in the Vendée. Yeah, we, uh, you, you've made this point again and again. And, and I, I have to say, it's just, I, I suppose I just haven't known enough about the Vendée. But I think one of the things doing this podcast has made me realise is that it's not just about the front line. The front line in this period is is France itself. And this is what happens in a situation where you have an unprecedented revolution. Alex... What would you say has changed from the start of 1792 to where we've got to at the end of 1793? There is a reason why I think we, we shifted our attention uh, to, to France more than the Eastern Europe. And Charles pointed out um, this. In fact, time, you know, usually we pay you know, attention more to the, uh, to the drama of, of 
conflicts and battles, and um, those ended in Poland, as well as in southeastern Europe between Russians and Turks in 1792. In 93, we actually see diplomatic efforts. We, you know, for example, the, Poli- the Polish partition didn't end in 92. In fact, the diplomatic negotiations that led to actual partition will continue through 93. And it is in November of 1793 at the Gro- that the Grodno Sejm, the Grodno Assembly, will formally accept the partition and effectively sanction it. So, you know, 93 will be full of diplomatic uh, negotiations, but they're not sexy enough to talk about, right? Who wants to talk about assembly uh, uh, discussing the issues of who gets what? We, we tack, you know, tend to focus on the big, you know, kind of uh, uh, heroism and, uh, uh, and, and the battlefield uh, tactics. Now, uh, in 1793, I think I, I will take an issue with Charles's what miracle kind of proposition. And I'll take this side of the French revolutionaries. Because from the French revolutionary point of view, there is indeed a miracle if the coalition comes within just 100 miles from your center, from Paris, and you push it back. And now you, uh, you talk about acquiring Austrian Netherlands and pushing into the Rhineland or keeping the Spaniards down to the Pyrenees. I think that's a kind of miracle. It's a success story. Uh, but it is a success story that comes at a huge price, at the price of selling what the revolution is about. Of course, Alex, um, it all depends where you're standing. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in, in, my, in my flat in 2021, you know, equipped with, with 2020 hindsight and all the rest of it. In Paris in 1793, this great atmosphere of fear had been cooked up. Terror is, is linked directly to fear. So the idea of huge foreign armies bearing down on the revolution, the idea of, of not so much reds under the beds, but whites under the um, whites under the rugs or something. Um, you know, the idea of counter revolution at home being on the march. Of course, there is this atmosphere of crisis. And that in turn leads to if you like, the generation of the idea of, of, of there being a miracle. But we've already seen that the Vendéans have got no chance of breaking out of their enclave to any purpose. And, and, and the armies on the frontier are, are frankly not that much of a threat. They can get thus far, but no further, because they can't get through the French border fortresses. Oh, uh, yeah, coming back to these fortresses again. Yeah. In objective terms, I would suggest... There was no miracle. There's only a miracle if you are immersed in the propaganda of the revolution, which I might suggest that, that far too many historians have been in the past. I think I agree with you on that side. Uh, but, uh, but if you're on the boots on the ground kind of view, see, your view is a hindsight. It has a benefit of a hindsight. But if you're on the boots on the ground and you look from 1792 to 1793, it will look like a miracle. And certainly propaganda, uh, the French Revolutionary propaganda, the Committee of Public Safety rhetoric will help cultivate that. But there is success that the French gain. It is a dirty success, kind of, stained by both violence and, and an internal implosion and, and, and the problems that the revolution has. So Vendée from 90, December 93 forward, effectively, militarily doesn't pose any more threat. That's a success story. What 
at the yeah. tremendous price. Maybe that this is the place where we are um, closing the the book, as it were, the first chapter of um, the Napoleonic Quarterly, um, uh, leaving the Vendée there as it is. And just for one final comment, perhaps, Alex, as we look ahead to 1794, I mean, I, but I suppose it's sort of apt in a way that you know that that this is the, the end of the first stage of a story when we consider the twenty-four year scope that this podcast is aiming to cover. That this is this is really um, a moment to to reflect on that that, that that actually there's a lot lot more to come. Yes, indeed, and we are stopping it amidst a. Uh, a horrific moment really in the re- revolutionary period uh, because uh, we haven't touched even the I mean issues of the Christianization campaign or we haven't even explored the 45 armées révolutionnaires the revolutionary armies that operate the, in various departments right the story is is huge and it has so many different angles and aspects that it's hard to cover all of it together but together they create a situation that is complex and violent. And if you lived in this, if you are in, in France in 1793, of course, your experience would depend where you are physically. But if we are in Paris, living through terror would have been uh, an abysmal uh, experience. And what makes things even worse is that there is no light at the end of tunnel, so to speak. Because you see the rhetoric increasing, you see the radicalism of Hebert. You see the Christianization policy, you see that yesterday's friends, the Jacobin and the Danton and the Robespierre are now increasingly falling out. And you don't know where that is heading, but it's, it's clearly heading towards uh, even more violence. October 1793 sees the execution of Brissot and and, uh, many of his colleagues. They've been in prison until then. And so the revolution starts to devour its own. Now I shed no tears whatsoever for Brissot and his gang. I, I, I really say good riddance to bad rubbish. But the fact of the matter is that this is this is a development which is which shows which shows a revolution taking arms against itself, having dealt with one crisis, in a sense it's creating another. And that's it for season one of the Napoleonic Quarterly. Thank you to Alex Mikabridze and Charles Esdale. Thanks also to Philip Ball and Christy Pikikaro for their contributions in this episode. And uh, thank you to all the contributors, all the interviewees. It's been such great fun talking with you. Thanks to my very old friend Ben Eckersley for composing and performing all the music you've heard. At the end of this quarter, there are just 7,838 days to go until Waterloo. Um, 88 episodes left in this podcast. Crikey. Um, please stick with me I certainly hope you'll join me for season 2 of the podcast coming up after a suitable interval if anyone fancied leaving a review on Apple Podcasts that would be marvellous please do follow the podcast on Twitter at Napoleonic underscore Q including amusing pictures of Brissotown chickens coming home to roost and there's a Facebook page which is slowly cranking up into action too 
During the next few weeks, I'll be releasing the next batch of interviews with some more of those you've heard on the Napoleonic Quarterly. In the meantime, thanks very much for all your kind comments on Twitter. It's very, very encouraging. And while there are still some weeks to go, the Napoleonic Quarterly will return for season two, covering 1794 and 1795, two years in which the French military machine turns the tide against the Allies. I can't wait for it, and I hope you join me for it. But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening to the first eight episodes, at least, of the Napoleonic Quarterly. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.